October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, episode number 41, Dear John, Part 1. Last time, we surveyed the ups and downs of denominational life in the early 1900s. Now, on the upside was the truly astonishing spread of Adventism around the globe. And on the downside was Kellogg, Jones, debt, disorganization, lack of spirituality in Battle Creek, and also in Battle Creek, fire. Yes, fire. Fire took down the sanitarium and the Review and Herald buildings. Now, some of these challenges were just the natural pains that any growing organization goes through. And some of these challenges were just people shooting themselves in the foot, metaphorically or something. On November 26th, 1905, it was a sunny Sunday morning in California's beautiful Napa Valley. And since Adventists have nothing going on on Sunday morning, Ellen White decided to go out for a ride. When she returned home, she found a bunch of people in her home yelling, Surprise! Ellen White had forgotten her own birthday. But hey, when you turn 78, you can forget your birthday too. Now, I would love to tell you that they all sang Happy Birthday to Ellen White, but that song was still a few years away, and so was Birthday Cake. So they did eat something together, and then they sang some hymns, which is really how we're meant to celebrate our birthdays. And Ellen White was real about what it meant to be 78. After all, when she was born, life expectancy was something like 37 years old. So she's more than beat the average. She's living gratefully. She told those gathering for her birthday this, quote, I do not know as I shall be with you till another birthday. I do not cling to life, neither do I dread it. I am willing to take whatever God may see fit to send me. But one thing I do desire is that as long as I have the breath of life, my mental powers may be preserved. I am very thankful that my mind is as clear as it is. End quote. Well, if death didn't worry Ellen White on her birthday, then the welfare of the Seventh-day Adventist Church did. Because one of the curious things she said in her short birthday speech was this line, quote, I greatly desire that no contention or unbelief may cause me a single thought of retaliation against those who are opposing my work, end quote. Now, you don't say something like that unless you're wrestling with a lot of frustration at the moment. All right, and it can seem to some of our listeners that the church is just consumed by constant controversies. But we should keep in mind that the story we're telling is focusing on the leaders of this movement, and leaders deal with problems that the most of the rest of the church may never see. Somewhere in our heads, many of us have come to believe that good churches and good marriages just don't have problems, that problems mean something is broken or wrong. People just have different ideas about things, and what matters is that we solve problems, not that we have problems. Anyway, what's interesting about that line of Ellen White's birthday speech is that she's actually mostly worried about herself, worried that she will let conflict make her bitter, make her want revenge. She was keenly self-aware, and she could see how these feelings might just slip in under the guise of righteousness or whatever and destroy her work, 
So Ellen White, on her 78th birthday, was putting her armor on during the last major conflict that she would ever face. Happy birthday, Ellen White. The turn into the 20th century was met with some confusion. Some Americans celebrated the new century on January 1, 1900, and others insisted that the new century didn't actually begin until 1901. You always have those people. There was, as always, plenty of editorializing about what the 20th century might hold. Boring platitudes about ringing in the new year were printed and printed and printed all over. The Americans who seemed to have the most fun in this new century were those in Richmond, Virginia. The local paper observed, quote, With the first stroke of the midnight hour was Bedlam let loose. Colored fires lit up the night while bells rang out and every whistle blew. Thousands of explosions, ranging from the dynamite cracker, or as it is more affectionately known, the baby waker, and the shotgun. End quote. People shot rockets, rockets, and flooded the street all night with their guns and their baby wakers. Listen, as a parent of small children, I think I speak for everyone when I say, go home. I will personally come out there and crush all of you if you wake up my child. Anyway, where was I? Oh, yeah. The 1900s. The new century was more than just the turning of a calendar page. The whole Western Hemisphere was going through an incredible transformation. It was an era of immense optimism, of technological, political, and social change. In America, if you had started work just after the Civil War, you could be making twice as much as you once did by the time that you retire. The 1880s and 90s saw Tesla and Edison battling over electricity. And as you can imagine, change brings the old ways and the new ways into tension. They clash. And this is going to be the cultural background for the rest of this podcast. Adventism in the early 20th century, more than at any other time in its history, is struggling to adjust to this rapidly changing world. And so the background question becomes... How do we translate these 19th century ideas of Adventism into the 20th century? What relevance does a word-centered movement have in an increasingly visual age? How do we talk about our Victorian values of modesty and economy and sacrifice in an era increasingly commoditized and wealthy? On top of all of this, the early 1900s were also the time when the founders of Adventism were disappearing, and the second and third generations of the movement were taking over. And there's always some uncertainty when a younger generation is entrusted with the sacred life work of their elders. Are they going to squander it? Are they going to fundamentally change it, i.e. ruin it? Now, none of them articulated the problem this clearly. These are the sort of things that we say when we're looking back. They just knew that the world was changing in strange and amazing and uncomfortable and brilliant and scary ways, and they were sorting through that change and just trying to figure out what all of this meant. Okay, so that's the background of what we're going to talk about in this episode and in all the future episodes of this podcast. Now we need to zoom in. If you need a catalyst for this conflict then it's John Harvey Kellogg. But you need to know that it's bigger than Kellogg alone, because as we will see in this episode and in the next one, 
Kellogg situated himself as Adventism's bright future. He was a modern man. He vehemently opposed segregation. He wanted his sanitarium to have cutting-edge technology. He would travel to Europe several times in his life, buying the latest medical books and whatever new devices had been invented since his last trip. By Kellogg's own count, he spent $15,000 of his own money on medical books and $50,000 of his own money to take classes or learn the latest techniques, these sort of things. Kellogg didn't aim to be a good doctor. He aimed to be the leading doctor in the world. And he was just as good a showman as he was a doctor. He had the same creative urgency and idealistic impatience that Steve Jobs had and was just as good as Jobs in marketing it. We don't often think of John Harvey Kellogg as a misfit genius like Leonardo da Vinci or Jobs, but he was. He was deliberately disruptive. He ignored convention. He was restlessly curious. He had a magnetic personality that constantly pushed people toward greatness and annoyed them. And he had an imperious will, the standard traits of misfit geniuses or geni or whatever the plural of genius is. And no one knew what to do with him. If Kellogg were alive today, half of Hollywood would be visiting his sanitarium as some kind of hip wellness center. He'd have a New York Times bestseller at the airport. I mean, he sold more than a million copies of his own books, after all. He'd have a TV show or something. Right? New York's Evening Post even thought that Kellogg deserved a Nobel Prize. In a 10-year span, John Harvey Kellogg helped start 30 sanitariums from Mexico to Europe to Australia to South America. He was remarkably generous, donating more money than he made to see these institutions flourish. He started vegetarian restaurants and health food companies, too. He poured tens of thousands of dollars into helping the poor of Chicago. There he offered vouchers for one-penny meals. So when homeless people panhandled, you could just give them this penny voucher rather than cash because people then, as now, are always afraid of what homeless people are going to spend cash on. So you can just give them this penny voucher and they can take it over to, to Kellogg's building and they can get a meal. And then later on, he, he made it so that this same homeless person would have a place to sleep, to shower, and to eat. So in one year, Kellogg's medical mission in Chicago served 600,000 of these penny meals, provided free bathing facilities, free laundry facilities, and beds for 400 people. But the anchor on all of Kellogg's dreams was that he always needed more money, more money, more money, always more money. Not to enrich himself, not because he was greedy, but because of his restless and relentless vision to heal the world. John Harvey and his brother, William Keith Kellogg, of course, were most famous for having invented cornflakes as a breakfast cereal. In an age where people had to fire up their wood-burning stoves to cook a few eggs and potatoes and bacon for breakfast, it just seems like a miracle to be able to pour your breakfast out of a box add some milk, and there you go. It was healthier, it was cheaper, and it was quicker than the breakfast the average American ate. Kellogg was also the most famous Adventist in the world. 
Richard Schwartz called him the social conscience of Adventism in his time. He was the vision of a respectable, celebrated, socially just Adventism. And this vision that he represented had some gravity to it. It had some weight to it. It was attractive. Because when you belong to a movement that is always the minority, always misunderstood, always the underdog, always under-resourced, well, Kellogg was your Constantine. Kellogg represented a vision of Adventism that didn't have to be Protestantism's annoying kid brother anymore. Adventism could be respectable. Adventism could be wanted. Adventism could be attractive. All of these things were wrapped up in the person and personality of John Harvey Kellogg. And of course, Kellogg's modernizing impulse, his disregard for convention, clashed with some of the more cautious and conservative church leaders. That was inevitable. And this is how Kellogg preferred to portray it. Old church leaders standing in the way of progress. This was the story of 1888 all over again. And hadn't Ellen White been on the side of the progressive Jones and Wagner back then? Hadn't she stood against these old conservative leaders? This is how Kellogg wanted to paint the picture. This is how he wanted people to see the controversy. But I think we have some good reasons not to buy into that, or at least not to attribute it as the main cause of the controversy. There's two things that stand out when you get to the heart of this conflict. First, Kellogg's health ministry was supposed to be a supporting ministry of the church, but it's clear that it had grown to rival the institutional church in power. I mean, after all, he employed more people than the entire denomination did. So it was something of an Oedipus situation, where the son has grown up and grown strong, and now the father knows he cannot just order the son around anymore. The son has the power to resist if he willed it. So this shift in power, this coming of age of Kellogg, creates a kind of nervous tension until we figure out where the chips are going to fall. Father and son are just kind of staring at each other across the, across the room in a battle of wills. And the second issue was that it became increasingly clear that Kellogg's vision of Adventism was different, or growing more different, than the rest of the church. So with Kellogg's medical ministry growing in influence, growing in power, and with Kellogg signaling that he may start using that power to accomplish his own vision, you have the most dangerous situation the Seventh-day Adventist Church had yet faced. If Kellogg had prevailed in this contest, he would have split the Seventh-day Adventist Church in two. There are other elements of the conflict, too. Kellogg's autocratic style didn't help. He hardly consulted church leaders about his plans. He often acted first and asked permission later. To church leaders, Kellogg was just this runaway train. And for now, they were just thankful that he was running off in the right direction. But you never knew. To Kellogg, of course, the church leaders didn't understand his vision or his genius. And as lesser men with lesser vision, all they could do was try to keep putting the brakes on him, which he resented. Worse yet... Pastors and other church leaders embarrassed Kellogg because they just didn't often live up to his perfect vision of health that he was preaching. You know, so here he is preaching this vision of health in Battle Creek, and there are those pastors, there are those church leaders who aren't vegetarian or who aren't making the same commitments against tea and coffee that he's, uh, that he's preaching about. 
And so it just seems to him like they're undermining him, like they don't give him their full support, that they're not on board. To Kellogg, they were all hypocrites. So if Kellogg was a train, then as we've said, his train ran on cash, lots and lots of cash, and he needed the church precisely for that reason. But the question becomes, what happens when the church can no longer provide it? What would Kellogg do then? With the church stretched thin around the world, there was no way the church could give the piles of cash that Kellogg desperately needed to fuel his locomotive. And Kellogg understood that reality, though he still believed he got less money than he deserved. So Kellogg would rely on donations from Adventists and non-Adventists to keep things going. Donations from other denominations naturally made church leaders nervous because money comes with strings attached, and those strings always seemed to be pulling Kellogg's ministry to adopt a more ecumenical focus. As for getting donations from Adventists, church leaders grew increasingly resistant to Kellogg fishing in the church's pond. Adventist members only had so much money to give, and every dollar they gave to Kellogg was a dollar they weren't giving to support missionaries or evangelism or publishing or whatever. So Kellogg felt that church leaders just didn't want him to succeed. They grumbled when he asked the leaders for money, saying they didn't have enough. They grumbled when he asked Adventist members for money. They grumbled when he asked other Christians for money, like, really, what do you want me to do, guys? And of course, church leaders weren't always innocent in this. They, they sometimes did more than grumble. When Kellogg hatched a clever plan whereby Adventist farmers would dedicate the profit from a few acres of their field and give that to Kellogg's ministry after the harvest, several local conferences strategically redirected the money to causes that they thought were worthier, which was not a cool move. Basically, the church treated Kellogg's medical ministry like it was one department among many, like religious liberty or education. What Kellogg wanted was to be treated more as an equal, so mistrust built up on both sides, and rumors and accusations whispered in Battle Creek echoed around Adventism. Kellogg, of course, publicly supported the church's mission and leaders. Sure, the relationship had some differences of opinions, but what relationship doesn't? Yet Kellogg signaled from time to time that he could find love elsewhere, it was like someone saying, you know, that girl over there said that if we ever broke up, she'd date me. That kind of offhand comment can be a subtle power play. In other words, if you don't work harder to keep me, I have other options, right? So Kellogg dropped just enough of these hints that the church went back and forth between versions of, please don't leave me, I'll try harder, and don't let the door hit you on the way out. I'll give you a few examples of how Kellogg introduced uncertainty into the relationship. In 1897, the sanitarium's initial charter failed, and it was forced to reorganize. Naturally, most of the original stakeholders were Adventists, and most of them were ready to sign on to the new charter. should have been a formality. Kellogg, however, rewrote parts of the charter. He declared that the sanitarium would be, quote, of an undenominational, unsectarian, humanitarian, and philanthropic nature, end quote. Now, a charter was the guiding legal document of the institution, so it's, it behooves you to understand the meaning of every word. Avenist leaders, naturally, asked Kellogg exactly what he meant when he declared that the sanitarium would be undenominational, 
because the word sounded like the sanitarium would no longer have any official connection to the Seventh-day Adventist church. Oh, no big deal, Kellogg reassured the leaders. It just means that we're not going to discriminate against anyone based on their beliefs. Well, that seemed to pacify some people, but others observed that the sanitarium had never once discriminated against anyone, so why do you even need to put that line in the charter? Well, Kellogg had an answer for that, too. He said that he had to place that line in the new charter so that he could receive some much-needed government assistance. And if Kellogg could get some government money, like being tax-exempt, then that's less money he would want to take from the church. So everyone wins, right? Well, it's hard to argue with that, and everyone moved on. But it still left some wondering if Kellogg had just snuck a time bomb into the DNA of the sanitarium charter. Now look, I'm no 19th century lawyer, but if I could be a lawyer with a time machine, I'd go back there and suggest that maybe they add a line that says something like this. The Battle Creek Sanitarium is a Seventh-day Adventist philanthropic institution to provide holistic medical care for all people, regardless of gender, religion, hair color, and favorite movie. Right? I mean, wouldn't that make everyone happy? Kellogg would say other things that couldn't be so easily explained. One time he claimed that the sanitarium was not, quote, for the purpose of presenting anything that is peculiarly Seventh-day Adventist in doctrine, end quote. When questioned on that, he would shrug and say that its goal was not to teach religion, but to practice health. He said that the sanitarium was, quote, simply the undenominational side of the work which Seventh-day Adventists have to do in the world, end quote. Sure, we're called to preach and teach the Bible. That's the Seventh-day Adventist part of the church, and that's for schools and churches to do. But there's a basic Christianity that we have to do, and that's what the sanitarium does. We heal the sick and help the poor. Didn't Jesus both teach and heal? Well, we do the healing, you do the teaching. That's all I meant. Well, then Kellogg told a reporter, that the sanitarium had, quote, no connection with the Seventh-day Adventist denomination as such, end quote. And when he was questioned on that, he would shrug again and say what he meant was that it had no legal ties to the Seventh-day Adventist denomination. Sure, it was owned by stakeholders, most of whom were Adventists, but it wasn't an entity of the church per se. So I think by now you're getting the point, and that is that Kellogg always had a very reasonable answer for everything. Really, he did. And yet, the other point is that you walk away thinking something's off, but you just can't quite put your finger on it. You can't prove anything. And this is how the church came to be polarized around the personality of John Harvey Kellogg. For the longest time, church leaders didn't know exactly how to deal with Kellogg's answers. Ellen White wrote, quote, in one sense, it is true that the Battle Creek Sanitarium is undenominational, in that it receives as patients people of all classes and all denominations. But, if ever an institution was established to be denominational in every sense of the word, this sanitarium was. As a Seventh-day Adventist institution, it was established to represent the various features of gospel missionary work, thus to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord." End quote. So you get the impression that even Ellen White is wrestling with Kellogg's slipperiness. He has a point on one hand, but on the other hand, this other thing. 
So she says that the sanitarium is very much a Seventh-day Adventist institution, and I'm sure if you took that statement to Kellogg, he would agree with it wholeheartedly. It is an Adventist institution in the sense that it was founded by and is run by Adventists and Adventist principles. So even Ellen White had a hard time in the beginning putting her finger exactly on what was going on. She had a very special interest in John Harvey Kellogg. He was like a son to her. And after gently correcting him in the early 1890s, she signed the letter to him with these words, from one who has the deepest interest in your prosperity. And she meant it. In 1899, she wrote him and told him, I love you and I pray for you and I believe the Lord hears my prayers for you as verily as if they came from your own mother's heart. Kellogg had gotten his start in the Review and Herald office back in 1864. James White had sent young John Harvey Kellogg to the University of Michigan for medical school. And let me just say, as an Ohio State fan, that this totally explains Kellogg's ultimate downfall. Go Buckeyes. When John Harvey came to his senses and dropped out of the University of Michigan, he went to Bellevue in New York. For that, James and Ellen gave him $1,000. That's a lot of money back then. $1,000. That's how much they believed in this kid. In fact, Ellen White would, would write that in some ways, James had been more of a father to John Harvey Kellogg than James had been with his own boys. Ouch. Ellen White told Kellogg that, quote, my husband and I were to act the part of a father and mother to you. End quote. That's what she felt called to do. James and Kellogg's father, however, both died in the same year. And when Kellogg's dad was on his deathbed, his final wish to Ellen White was that she would look after John Harvey Kellogg. There was a bond between this woman and that man. And that bond made this situation so incredibly painful. Well, when things finally became much clearer, Ellen White wrote Kellogg directly, quote, I have a great burden of soul for you, Dr. Kellogg. If I could see you in the road that leads onward and upward, I should be more than thankful. Were you a child, I would say that you have been spoiled through flattery, vain conceit, and self-exaltation. You twist words, you misinterpret, and you make assurances that are false. You have cultivated this deceptive influence until you have become an unreliable man. With what grief and sadness the Lord has looked upon you, end quote. And you get the impression that Ellen White felt the same way. Kellogg's shifty statements and Ellen White's personal warnings carried on for years. In between, of course, Kellogg and the church made it work. They worked together to plan dozens of sanitariums around the world and worked together in countless ways. Kellogg generously supported Edson White's work in the South. As we talked about earlier, Kellogg helped Willie White set up a health food manufacturing business at Avondale College, which of course became one of Australia's most popular food manufacturers. Real progress toward reconciliation seemed to happen in 1901, when Ellen White used her muscle to address some of Kellogg's concerns at the general conference session. That's when Kellogg and his medical missionaries got increased representation on the executive committee. Kellogg also got placed on the Foreign Missions Board, so he would have more of a stake 
in the church side of things and not just the medical side of things. Now, that same session elected Arthur G. Daniels to be chair of the executive committee, which was effectively the presidency. And Daniels was the first leader with a spine since G.I. Butler back in the 1888 days. And in between, the church had wanted more passive and non-confrontational leaders while everyone healed up. But with problems mounting, Daniels was the man. Most of all, Daniels was the man to get the church out of debt. Kellogg and Daniels actually got along pretty well at first. Daniels was willing to admit that the church hadn't always treated Kellogg fairly, and he and Ellen White supported Kellogg's desire for his medical workers to get those spots on the General Conference Executive Committee. In return, Kellogg was happy to have a leader with a backbone and who had some degree of business sense, so maybe they could work together. Nevertheless, Ellen White wanted to make sure Arthur Daniels kept his spine stiff. She wrote and warned him about Kellogg's silver tongue. Quote, Do not let him beguile you by his statements. Some may be true, some are not true. He may suppose that all his assertions are true, but you should neither think that they are nor encourage him to believe that he is right. I know that he is not in harmony with the Lord. End quote. Daniels soon learned two things on his own. First, that accommodating Kellogg meant that the church would go deeper into debt because Kellogg always wanted more money for his newest project. And second, Daniels realized that he didn't much like the hold that Kellogg had over other members of the General Conference Executive Committee. Kellogg was shrewd and likable, a good politician, and Daniels realized that he faced a power struggle with Kellogg. Whoever held the allegiance of the Executive Committee members essentially held the power. Ultimately, the catalyst for the coming crisis came down to money. Daniels believed that he had been elected president to get the church out of its $2 million in debt, and most of that debt, by the way, was tied up in Kellogg's vision to put a sanitarium in every street corner. Daniels had to put his foot down. He believed that the hard-working members of the church were tired of church leaders spending themselves into oblivion, even if it was for good causes. Well, when the sanitarium in Battle Creek burned down in 1902, Kellogg was cornered. His rebuilding program, despite how cheap he promised it would be, ended up being hugely expensive and hugely over budget. With the church $2 million in the hole, they just couldn't give Kellogg the $700,000 that he needed. So Kellogg wanted to sell bonds for church members to buy. It's a good way to raise money. Except Ellen White strongly discouraged any members from doing that, saying that this is $700,000 that church members couldn't then give to other things. It was essentially the same thing. Kellogg was cornered, and he was frustrated. He was getting tired of hassling with the church for money. He was getting tired of begging. Begging was not in his nature. He was getting tired of a bunch of ministers who didn't follow his health message. He was getting tired of leaders who didn't get his vision. The church just didn't seem to be a partner for him anymore, but an obstacle. Kellogg had built a wellness empire from one small building in Battle Creek. He was one of the most esteemed doctors in the world. Famous people flocked to his sanitarium, and some small group of Christians are going to try and corner him, try and dry up his Euphrates? Well, maybe this is why Ellen White called Kellogg a modern King Nebuchadnezzar. Is not this the great sanitarium that I have built? 
Yet Kellogg had one last fundraising scheme, one last brilliant way of raising the kind of money he needed to fund his empire of health. Kellogg was already a fairly successful writer, but he had seen how Ellen White had helped the church schools get out of debt by donating all of the profits from Christ's object lessons. Of course, the church engine of publicity had promoted the stuffing out of that book, and he thought, what if they did the same for me? He could write a book explaining his vision for wellness. And given Kellogg's stature, not just within the church, but society, man, it would probably sell way beyond anything Ellen White had ever written. I mean, Kellogg had friends everywhere, all over the world. Young doctors would line up to buy his books from Germany to Australia like it was the newest iPhone. This book would bring greater prestige for the Adventist health message, but even better, it would bring in loads of cash for the medical work. His first print run would be 400,000 copies. I mean, Christ's Object Lessons only printed 300,000 copies, and that was from Ellen White, the church's prophet. Kellogg would top that easily. It would be glorious, an instant bestseller. Until, you know, church leaders actually read the book. Then it became the book that almost broke the church. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist History content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>